Hey, friends. Thanks so much for starting up this episode of Concessions, where Dan and I absolutely just love bomb on Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. This is another episode that has its roots in the essays that Dan and I used to write together before we started the podcast, and we've been dying to get this episode recorded and edited and released to you, so here it is. Other than being just struck dumb by the ambition and artistry on display in this movie, uh, it's also excellent fodder for philosophical and historical conversations as well, uh, both as far as the content on display in the film, but also the film's position in the history of cinema itself and how it upends certain norms. Put simply, Del Toro created just an unequivocal masterpiece here, and we just delighted in counting the ways in which it is a masterpiece. If you're a fan of the podcast, please give us a like, a follow, a rating, wherever you happen to be listening to this. You can also find us online. I make my home over on Threads, where you can find me under Jared Concessions. Dan is over on Twitter at Dan Concedes. Now, come alive and see the world with new eyes as we consider the bigger picture and dig into Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Saw is so cowardly. Why have they not crossed over with other uh, horror franchises yet? We're on yeah. Saw 11 and we haven't done one crossover. No Saw versus Jason. <laughs> I mean, that would be actually interesting. Like take a, a handful of like unkillable slasher icons and subject them to Jigsaw's traps. And Saw trap them. Yeah. But yeah. They ha- yeah, they'd have to be and ones they- that aren't like supernaturally unkillable or else they right. can use their supernaturalness. Right. Yeah, there has to be some sort of conceit that brings them into the like corporeal world altogether, right? <laughs> and uh, but yeah, each one, each trap could just be very, very, you know, uh, like you know, themed. It can be it can be branded for that killer. <laughs> like, Hello, I'd Freddy. watch that shit. <laughs> you you oh, delight shit. in entering dreams. In front of you is a DC mini. <laughs> you're gonna put it on and you're gonna fight a giant baby. <laughs> Give birth to a giant baby and you're going to feel yeah. it. Yeah. 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 Live or die. <laughs> Make your choice. Oh, beyond stupid. Okay. Well, they no, should no. just let us write Hollywood. Howdy, howdy, howdy. And welcome to Concessions. I'm Jared. And I'm Dan. And we're not going to make just our nose grow tonight. We're going to make our minds grow tonight. Oh, it's all wood in this case. Yeah, nothing. I I can't think of anything else that's going to grow. At least maybe our hearts. Any any other things? Oh well, well, I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Um, you know, it's not making me grow. What I'm drinking again? White Claw. (laughs) It's only a hundred calories per can. It's gluten free. Uh, it it it's spiked sparkling water with just a hint of watermelon. Oh, only goodness. two carbs. It's made pure. White Claw, hit me up on threads at Jared Concessions, and I'd be more than happy for you to send me free White Claw for me to do this in every single episode. What for about these, you, Dan? Who, for the sophisticated podcaster, White Claw, watermelon. Yeah. I also want free White Claw. Send me some, too. 
Yeah, who's who's paying you to drink their beverage on the air? <laughs> oh fuck, I'd be thrilled if Tangray paid me for uh, drinking their beverages. Uh, I just got some gin, a little bit of soda, lemon twist, and some bitters here. Uh, wanted to shake it up from we. This is a double episode that we recorded something earlier, and I'm like, eh, I don't want wine again. Wow, even healthier than my beverage. Yeah, I tend to. I don't know if you feel this way, but generally, if a liquor is clear, I'm just like, oh, that's good for you. It's got to be. It's got to be. Yeah. yeah. I, I know I've quoted it on the show before, but it always goes back to Ron Swanson's uh, quotation where someone asks him if he wants a vodka and he says, clear liquors are for rich women on diets. Well, I'm a rich woman on a diet and proud of it. But what, uh, Jared, you, you watch anything last week? Maybe. Or did you just sit in a, in a shadowy hole and cry? I don't, I don't know. I did that, but I also found time to immerse myself in some Italian things. Oh, again, Italian wood. Yeah. Some, yeah. He's strong. He's sturdy. He's made of <laughs> fine Italian pine. <laughs> um, yeah. I, so I, I read the original children's novel Pinocchio by uh, by Carlo uh, Collodi. Mm. I had never read it before. My daughter and I have started reading chapter books together. Oh, fun. And I, you know, being a book that was written in the 1880s, I wasn't sure if it'd be appropriate for children of 2023. Right. So I'm, I'm reading it solo before I read it out loud to her. And I thought it would be a good week to do that since I knew we were talking about Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. But on the flip side, kind of very different side of the coin as far as Italian works of art, I watched one of my favorite movies of the last decade or so uh, for the, I don't know, fifth or sixth time. And I still enjoy every single moment of it. Uh, Fast X. Call Me By Your Name. Oh, okay. You're close. You're close. <laughs> but yeah, Call Me By Your Name. Excellent. Go on. Absolutely excellent. Uh, reminds me exactly why timothy chalamet is where he is today he is a fantastic actor that role in particular is just so well melded to him mm -hmm. and using all of his talents his musical talents his depth of feeling his wonderful face obviously and um I, i'm along for the ride on that movie every time i watch it i get swept up in the emotion of it i cry at the same points every single time and you know, I'm kind of glad that the you know Army Hammer and his family have been outed as mm. a family of cannibals because they were going to make the sequel. the The film "Call Me by Your Name" only adapts the first half of the novel, but I feel like the film ends at the perfect moment for like maximum impact, and I don't yeah. want them to upend that in any way. The like the very the final scene, like the the, the ending credits of "Call Me by Your Name," are heartbreaking and oh, perfect nice yeah. like my friend that i watched it with when you know timothy he sits Timothy's? down sits down by the fire and just starts to cry like holds uncomfortably long in his face and then the title card comes up and my friend like you know realizing oh that's the end of the movie and this is the image we're left on she like <gasps> she like <laughs> yeah she, she like gasped yeah. and uh that feeling is is just perfect that movie's perfect yeah, uh, Guadagnino as a director is perfect. Timothy you Chalamet seen, is perfect. You haven't seen Bones and All yet, have you? I have seen Bones and All. Oh, I think that's also excellent. And funny that he uh, didn't include Army Hammer in that one. No, nah, can't can't do a cannibalism love story with Army Hammer anymore. Um, but 
Uh, interestingly, everything you're saying about uh, Chalamet is correct about that film, but the scene that, because there are just so many excellent scenes from that, but the scene I keep going back to in that is from uh, Michael Stolberg. Yeah. Um, and towards the end, when he like pretty much sits Timothy down and like all but says like, I know everything that was going on. I kind of had a similar story too. And here's how I feel about it is like one of the better monologues I think I've ever seen in film. Absolutely. Yeah. Michael Stolberg with his big bushy beard and his just kind, gentle countenance. He's really, I feel like he was conjuring like vintage Robin Williams. Oh yeah. yeah. Just like so gentle, so full yeah, excellent stuff. And when I was watching it, because you, know, you, you, you and I have both been doing some writing on the side, right? And uh, the screenplay for Call Me By Your Name does this miraculous thing where what isn't being said is often the highlight mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of the dialogue. And it happens so much through the movie that especially like with his parents, pretty much knowing that he's gay and like knowing what's going on. And we, the audience can like kind of, kind of tell his parents know what's going on even though he's kind of hiding it and he's got some shame about it but yeah that scene where that all comes to a head and he still lies to him though he's he asks, does mom know and yeah. he goes i don't think she does like still mm-hmm. just like sparing his his baby boy of like any sense of any added like shame any added shame or embarrassment mm-hmm. absolutely fucking gorgeous uh mm-hmm. i love that movie so much do we need, do we need to throw that on like put it on the gold counter i i could absolutely just melt into the microphone for a couple hours on call me by your name that's for fucking sure what what did you watch this week dan or what did you read like what 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 have you got for me so uh we're gonna move over from italy to france with something where i think i've told you about this where i'd had a ongoing project probably for the last two years where i wanted to see everything from the sight and sound top 100 and uh, I think they had just come out with their new list last year, but I had started this two years ago. So basically I knew the list was going to update, but I wanted to get all of the original 100 out or at least the 100 at that time. And I knew there's going to be a new one. I'll have some new ones to check out. But the one film for that survived to both lists, I just could not find anywhere online. I couldn't find any way to stream it whatsoever until eventually I found it on the internet archive, fortunately, is uh, Jean-Luc Godard's I can't say history in French, but histoire, histoire, uh, it's very French looking, do cinema. And they purposely keep it usually with, you know, uh, foreign films when they, uh, they'll, they'll translate it over for you. But this one, they keep it there because the, the, the French word for history is also the French word for story. It's a pun. So they want to keep that in there and uh, preserve that. And they also, because he's Godard and he's fucking pretentious up his own ass and God love him for that. At the end, in brackets, is an S. So it's like, is it plural? But also, it's not plural. Ooh, yeah. It's complex. It's semiotic. Wow. Um, <laughs> but on the surface, it's Jean-Luc Godard, you know, one of the major forces of the French New Wave, completely changed the way that we see uh, that how cinema has looked for the last 60, 70 years at this point. Yeah. Um, in 1989 he started this documentary and it ended in 99 essentially about the history of cinema in the 20th century that's the simplest way to put it but what it winds up being is sort of there's this dual motion going on where it's the history of cinema in the 20th century and it's the history of the 20th century 
as the first century where cinema is the, the main way that we understand how history works. And so he's colliding these two things over and over and crashing them and showing how they interact with one another, how like our understanding of like, you know, if I asked you right now to think about uh, the 1910s, you're going to think about it in black and white. It's going to kind of be like sped up like early cinema. And then if I tell you, what did the 70s look like? You're probably going to have that like film grainy, gnarly look of 70s cinema. And like that's that's how we think about these things because that's how now cinema teaches us to do that. Now anything before cinema, we don't have that sort of lens. Now it's through music, it's through painting, it's through other art forms. But this this was the first century where that's how we understand reality is through the form of cinema. And then how does that change cinema too? And our evolving understanding of it from all the way back to Georges Melier, and it's like more experimental, more scientific, more magical in ways. All the way up until, uh, well, at the time that he stopped, about 99. And then in interjecting his own personal history, too, as someone so enmeshed in what cinema would become. Like, a lot of the references that he puts in the film are his own films, which, like, right. of fucking course he would. Sure. Uh, but at the same time, he kind of has a right to do it. Um, but, yeah, it's it's boggling. It's no way did I understand all of it in one viewing. It's about four and a half hours. It's a little mini series cut up into, like, four distinct chapters yeah um it's something i hope i'll come back to in about 10 years and maybe understand a little bit more if i'd watched this 10 years ago i would have understood even less it's definitely something that will grow with me as i keep growing with understanding how cinema fucking works uh highly recommend i see why it's on the list awesome um that that reminded me have you seen either of peter jackson's recent documentaries they shall not grow old is incredible yeah and also um get back no i haven't seen get back so get back is documenting the beatles uh writing and recording the album let it be right and uh, he does the same thing where it's sort of like you know you take archival footage and do everything you can to kind of modernize the footage to make it more immediate for, you know, a 2021 audience in, in the case of, uh, get back. Um, yeah, he sort of like flies in the face of that concept where it's like, Oh, you think of world war one and sort of black and white and sped up and weird. Mm. It's like watching it, you know, watching it colorized and cleaned up and the motion corrected and like all that shit is just like it, it, it very, very much, exemplifies in the opposite fashion exactly what you're talking about that it's sort of become it starts to feel unnatural to see oh, you the, get like uncanny uh, valley to see the 19 teens mm. look like that yeah right? yeah i know when when in real life that's probably is closer to what it really looked like right yeah. with your with your eyes and um but man. our perception of it is radically different yeah wild wild stuff and um yeah if you have even like a passing interest in the beatles like even if you're like not a big fan but like you appreciate the beatles get back is really cool hmm. yeah it's definitely worth a look and another example of that is like have you ever seen like colorized photos of like some of the earliest photos yeah and it's, yeah and just by like turning something that you're used to thinking in black and white like i think i've seen like old like late samurais that are taking like uh, self-portrait photos of themselves and they've been touched up and colorized properly kind of look like a photo that you would see today and it yeah it, it's just weird like you don't know what to do with that because that's just not how you're used to seeing it yeah 
Well, while we're on the subject of cinematic masterpieces really <laughs> being entrenched in a certain point in history and and teaching us about history and reshaping our perception of history, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Good segue. Good segue. Thank you very much. Pinocchio's from the year of our Lord 2022. And by our Lord, I do mean director, writer, producer, Guillermo del Toro. Uh, Let's just be him. Yeah, this movie was directed by Guillermo del Toro along with Mark Gustafson, who was previously best known as the animation director at Wes Anderson's right hand for the fantastic Mr. Fox. Uh, this was written by Guillermo del Toro along with Patrick McHale, who is the writer and creator of Over the Garden Wall, as well as Adventure Time. Oh, uh, lots of Over the Garden Wall in this movie. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah. Uh, McHale also co-wrote the lyrics to the songs with Del Toro um, and uh, Alexandre Desplat uh, crafted the, the rest of the music, the beautiful score and the, you know, the music for the songs. Uh, this movie is based upon the classic novel by, by Carlo Collodi, which I mentioned earlier, but similarly to the Disney film doesn't really stick very closely to the novel at all. No. Um, very few adaptations of Pinocchio do is what I've learned by reading the novel this <laughs> week. Um, I would say that the Del Toro is far closer in tone uh, to the novel than the Disney one is. The novel is much darker. The, I would say um, very, very noteworthy would be that the character design of Pinocchio himself uh, is by Gris Grimley, who in 2003 released this version of Pinocchio that he illustrated. Oh, wow. Uh, Guillermo del Toro at the time, he had a friend who was like, hey, I'm, I'm introducing Gris Grimley at this uh, at this event that he's doing. This is in like 2001 or something. Mm -hmm. Do you want to meet him? And del Toro was like, yeah, I like, admire his art. And he was talking to Grimley and he was like, you know, in, in passing Grimley's like, my next project is I'm doing an illustrated version of Pinocchio. And do you want to see it? And Del Toro tells the story of like, oh, God, no, I don't want to see it. Like, no one ever gets Pinocchio right when they draw Pinocchio. Mm. But sure, show it to me. And like, so Grimley like emails him some photos uh, or some, you know, some of his artwork that he plans on publishing. And Del Toro is like, oh, wait, no, that's Pinocchio. That's like, that is, <laughs> that is not only the best Pinocchio, that's the only Pinocchio. Oh, I love and that. And that was back in, back in like 2001 or 2002. That's what finally gave Guillermo del Toro kind of impetus to like, okay, I think I can actually make Pinocchio look like this in a mm -hmm. movie. And he'd been wanting to make Pinocchio as an animated or a stop motion particular movie since he was a little kid. And finally, like 20 years ago, he really got the kind of got the gumption under him to make it happen. And then like 15 years ago, started actively, uh, you know, pre-producing Pinocchio. And then mm -hmm. finally, after all of that work, like a lifetime of dreaming about it and, you know, a solid 15 years of effort behind it, released this movie finally at the end of 2022. Mm -hmm. It stars uh, Gregory Mann in the titular role as Pinocchio and also Carlo. Um, but he was understudied by Alfie Tempest because post-production went on for so long that Mann's voice changed and <laughs> could no longer play the character. David Bradley is Geppetto. You might know him from Game of Thrones and also uh, Guillermo del Toro's The Strain on mm -hmm. FX. Ewan McGregor is the cricket. 
And the cast is rounded out by Ron Perlman, Bern Gorman, Finn Wolfhard, Christoph Waltz, Tilda Swinton, and Kate Blanchett. Who does Kate Blanchett play? I didn't quite recognize her in any of those roles. Which one was she again? Kate Blanchett is Spetsatura, the monkey. <laughs> and there's a great scene. Well, through, I mean, through the whole movie, like Kate Blanchett is literally making monkey noises, right? All monkey noise. But very specific, intentional. Uh, fully realized monkey noises, but there's one great scene that I think really demonstrates Kate Blanchett's versatility as a voice artist. It's when Spazzatura is using his puppets. He's using um, his Harlequin, his Punchinello, his Diavolos puppets all at the same time to reveal to Pinocchio that Count Volpe is deceiving him. And really what we're supposed to take as an audience is that somehow Spezzatura is a magical monkey. He can do all those puppet voices. And mm-hmm. so it's Kate Blanchett doing these three voices all at the same time, bouncing back between all of them and recording it live in the booth in one take, bouncing back and forth to like have this conversation with Pinocchio. And she's doing, she's basically doing Spezzatura's interpretation of these three different characters, two of them being male or one of them being male, one of them being female and the third being otherworldly. And she's just mm-hmm. like, absolutely perfect in every single one yeah and um yeah it's not often that tilda swinton and kate blanchett would be in the same movie i assume they auditioned for many of the same roles (laughs) but uh yeah kate blanchett was on um on set for um the last movie she did with guillermo del toro nightmare alley Mm -hmm. and was basically like can i be in pinocchio and he said well really the only person we don't have cast is the monkey and she's like i'll play the monkey Jesus. No, that's really the story. That's wonderful. Yeah, she said. She says. I remember specifically. She said, "I would play anything for Guillermo. I'd play a pencil in his Pinocchio movie if he asked me to." So <laughs> first, I'll play Spazzatura. And um, if you can't tell by just the timbre of my voice, I fucking adore this movie like so much, <laughs> so much. Um, do we? Do where do we go from here? Do we talk a little bit about like our previous relationship with this movie? So, um, just a little bit of like behind the curtain, um, that you guys have, have heard a few times in recent releases is Dan and I, before we decided to turn this into a podcast, we were just writing reviews or essays about movies, sending them to each other. We would, we would mark up each other's essays and then we'd get together on a zoom call and we'd spend an hour or two just discussing our points of view, the ways they differed, the way that they connected. And we kind of just, you know, hang out uh, and talk about our writing. And so we did this with that with a variety of different movies about a year ago, like in late, um, 2022 Mm -hmm. and Pinocchio was one of the first ones that we did and now uh, like many other films that we talked about back then we're coming back and properly recording them in podcast form so Dan I guess what was your kind of initial impression of of this movie back in late 2022 and how has that changed or galvanized uh, in the year since yeah that's yeah, it's an interesting way to frame it. I guess I wasn't thinking about it in that sense. Where if memory serves, us covering this one was my idea. Am I correct in asserting this? As you're drinking an ice cold watermelon white claw with only oh, two carbs, by the way. Extraordinarily smooth for something with only 100 calories. <laughs> uh, I don't remember. I really uh, don't. I. I know that I watched this right around the time it first released on Netflix and that I cried through a lot of it. And then afterwards 
I turned on the behind the scenes making of documentary and I cried through that entire thing. Oh, yeah. I don't, <laughs> I don't think I've ever openly wept over behind the scenes footage of a movie before. Um, like, it's up there with like the Lord of the Rings behind the scenes footage or like the story of Mad Max. Yeah, just the the amount, just the level of effort in this is just, it's almost like where does humanity find the hubris to do something like this? <laughs> like it's, it's almost like it's almost irresponsible. Like it's a lot of faith that a lot of people had that they would live to see it. Like, yeah, it's only beautiful because it worked. Like this could have been a disaster. Yeah. I think, I think of like Kurosawa doing an entire watercolor painting for every, every shot of Ron and how he uh, did that. He took, you know, 15 years to do that. Yeah. I think of George Miller taking 20 years basically to make Fury road. And this is like on that same level of effort, cool. but yeah, I don't, I, to answer your question, I don't remember which one of us decided yeah. we were going to cover. Maybe, it. maybe we were both just like, we both love Guillermo del, Guillermo del Toro and he's got a new one coming on Netflix. Let's put it on. That's um, probably it. But yeah, I remember a similar experience to you where the first time I watched it, where I was going in with my understanding of what Pinocchio is. So, you know, that's usually like uh, the main source text for anyone, uh, at least in the States, that's going to be watching a Pinocchio movie is, you know, Disney's Pinocchio from right. the 50s, sometime in the middle of the century. Um, <clears throat> but then there, it's also kind of one of those known things where it's like there's a lot of versions of Pinocchio out there and pretty much all of them, other than the Disney one, which has its charms, not quite for me, but I totally understand its charms. But after that, it's like, all of them are bad <laughs> outside of that. Uh, as you had mentioned uh, before we hopped on the mic, there is a, a pretty competently made and interesting Italian version that came out uh, within the last 10 years. But generally speaking, this was one, too, that I was like vaguely aware that this was uh, Del Toro's like dream project. It's one that had been cooking for a while. Um, it was his first foray into stop motion animation. So I really was fascinated to check this out and loved it the first time I saw it. And then on top of it, same as you, is whenever it finishes on Netflix, the next thing automatically suggests like, hey, you want to see how they made this shit? There's like behind the scenes stuff. And I'm like, yeah, I do. Yeah, I want to check that out. And that only deepened my appreciation of it. And then foolishly, I guess I then I just put it down. I didn't watch it again until for this podcast. I watched it, you know, a few days back now the second time. And now with that knowledge of like all the nuts and bolts that went in there and all the love that went into like everything down to just like the way they kind of trip over themselves sometimes when they walk was like, mm -hmm. like deliberately thought about and added in like just the minutia that you know that went yeah. to everything. And that's only the things that you hear on the documentary. Like that's like the tip of the iceberg. They're, and so that's why I kept thinking. It's like, I only know about the things they told me in that that they thought about to include in it. it's like what don't i know that's still in the shadows it's like something like so richly designed it's like and on top of just like a very good story that was told like both those layers were now like kind of cascading on one another yeah well and there's we're gonna we're gonna have a recurring theme through our discussion where there's so many examples of where form and function meet in this movie where like the way it's styled deepens our appreciation of the themes, right? Mm -hmm. So like the one that pops out already when like, you know, cause there's a, there's a very 
very deliberate effort to animate mistakes and imperfections where, you know, Del Toro says, I'm paraphrasing just a bit here. It's like when you're directing actors, you hope for little nuances, little accidents that make it more true to life, more little, um, just, you know, little, little mistakes or little, uh, human touches from the actors. And traditionally animation is anathema to that concept, but with an extraordinarily ambitious team of stop motion animators, it doesn't have to be. So he told his animators, you get to be the actors in this. Mm -hmm. And there's so many moments where, Geppetto picks up the wrong tool and then puts it back and picks up the right one. Or Carlo runs into the door at the beginning. It doesn't close all the way. So he has to run back and close it like that sort of thing. And the movie is literally about Geppetto learning to let go of the pursuit of perfection Mm. and how his new son doesn't have to be this, this perfect version of his former of his, you know, his, his deceased son, like like uh fascism is this example of like one like you know a small group of powerful people or one dictator's version of perfection quote unquote being imposed upon a society like i can't even think straight thinking about <laughs> how genius that all is will you I know help me like you're, you're almost getting like overwhelmed will you help me here like I'm no, like, and that, I'm that like getting even, choked up. <laughs> that even goes into the medium of stop motion where compare it to uh, bringing up the uh, the artist of uh, Gustafsson where he was on a Wes Anderson film. And Wes Anderson films, especially stop motion films, are known for their like perfect precision. There's not a single pixel on the screen that you're watching when you pull it up on your TV that hasn't been thought of, hasn't been controlled, isn't exactly how Wes Anderson wants it, even in his live action film. So Wes Anderson doing stop motion makes perfect sense because he is perfect in his precision with everything, where so is Guillermo del Toro. He's perfect in everything, but the big difference, and actually we we talk about this too in our discussion of uh, Asteroid City, where Guillermo del Toro is perfect is that he trusts the artist's to allow for these imperfections, to allow for these things that are discovered in the moment. But like it's it's double, it has a doubled effect in stop motion where it's something where every single thing is so perfectly manipulated and controlled that it it, it just folds into these themes over and over, like what you're talking about. And yeah, like where the theme of this film is disobeying this uh this fabricated form of perfection that is then thrust upon you, not only by, you know, your own father or the community around you, but like the body politic and how to be human with with this story of Pinocchio who wants to be a real boy. So like, there's another layer where it just keeps fucking folding and folding over itself for like a, essentially just a masterpiece. Yeah. Yeah. And like the, the movie is so much about the act of creation, right? Like it's Mm -hmm. so much about, uh, making things out of wood and bringing them to life like it's literally like the core of the story like that, the like, score too i mean like just everything is is ridiculously dialed in in that regard yeah so like that's a great example of like you know this is like geppetto is a woodworker these are puppets like it's a story about a puppet but they've decided to make a movie where everyone is a puppet both <laughs> literally 
like in real life, they were making puppets and filming them. That's the essence of what this stop mo- version of stop motion is. But it's literally about human puppets to fascism. And they they leave no stone unturned in exploring what that means. But but yeah, just like the not even small things, like like really big, big things really just kind of give this movie the same texture, the same tactile feeling of wood that actually comes through the screen and that you can hear like to the point where Alexander Splas score is, is entirely wooden instruments. Like, well, of course, like most instruments have some wood. So like there's piano in there, which is obviously wood and metal um, just like Pinocchio. He's got some metal to him as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but like most of the melodic structure in the score comes from woodwind instruments. They, auditioned many dozens of little boys to play Pinocchio until they found one whose singing voice sounded like a perfect woodwind instrument. Like <sighs> it's, it's just mind boggling. Like I don't even how intentional everything was. Yeah. Yeah. With that intention yet allowing for imprecision, you know, yeah, in, yeah. imperfectness. And um, yeah, you look at um, some of the behind the scenes footage and like some scenes were literally just an animator who is also the camera operator who has the the perfect storyboards from the cinematographer. They've already, they've already shot the scene in actual live action with real people. So they know how the camera is going to move and like how the focus needs to happen. And it's literally just an animator who is also a camera operator in one room by themselves for days, weeks, months, or years <laughs> you know moving the camera little by little moving the puppet little by little all the facial expressions all the micro gestures all of the big emotions all of the small ones um and just doing that i, I think they point out that the scene where geppetto and carlo are in the bedroom at the beginning and he's telling carlo that his nose will grow and grow and grow if he lies and um geppetto uh sings the the my son song to him he's geppetto is playing a functioning squeeze box accordion in that scene and and uh first of all the the just arrogance of an animator to dare have have their stop motion characters play realistic instruments realistically get the fuck out and they do it so many times in the movie there's three different characters that play the violin in this movie and um yeah like that scene of just them in the in their room uh, was one animator working on it for three years where i don't know if you ever heard this term uh, within animation i remember i think it's from it came from who framed roger rabbit where there's a scene in who framed roger rabbit where there's like a fight scene there there's like a tussle and it's a I, I think you know this where it's like there's animated characters there's live action characters in it and there's an animated lamp that's hanging down above them and in the the scene the lamp gets kicked and because the lamp gets kicked now the shadow gets all fucky you know because it's yeah. moving and that's way harder to animate they didn't need to do that it took like hours if not days weeks more of man time or manpower to make that look right but it, it winds up being such a more beautiful end product because of the effort that you can see is in there and i think it's like a term in uh, within animation which is called kicking the lamp and you're uh, 
you're expressing the same thing. It's like they didn't need to do any of those things. Like that story still could have been told without adding these layers into it, but they chose to do it. Yeah, there's like point of view shots from the puppets sometimes. There's there's a, there's a scene where Pinocchio, it's Pinocchio's point of view, and he picks up two glass bottles and looks through them, and we continue that point of view with that extra like filter over it, and just like there's so many moments like that that didn't they didn't have to go so hard, but they <laughs> did for they did us. It for us. <laughs> they did it for us. Um, so okay, let, let's talk about Guillermo del Toro's favorite kind of soundbite that he's been repeating over the last couple of years whenever he gets an opportunity to talk about this movie or animation scene i saw he this is what he devoted his whole oscar speech for for the oscar that he won for this movie um i saw him introduce teenage mutant ninja turtles uh mutant mayhem uh i saw a video of that this year where he also gives the same talking point but he talks about how animation is not a genre it's not just it's not a genre of films for children you can't put animation into a genre box. Animation is an art form unto itself. It's a medium. And I think that stop motion being kind of difficult to categorize because it like contains live action cinematic elements. Like there's literally a camera. There's someone that's lighting it like uh like a live action movie. Like there's a cinematography that's happening. You know, it's it's more tactile. I think it's like a kind of an easy bridge to sort of characterize animation as a medium instead of a genre because it sort, of, yeah. sort, of, sort of blurs the lines between animation and just cinema in general. But I, my question is we've covered a, we've covered a couple of Japanese auteurs who may, who don't treat animation as a genre for children. They treat it as a medium um, you know, think about Cone, who we talked about with Paprika. I think about Miyazaki, obviously. What is it about, you know, Japan versus, you know, America or, or, or like English speaking um, territories where it's like they treat animation as a medium and not a genre? Why are we in the West so entrenched in animation as a genre for children? Well, I guess part of it, and I would have to dig deeper into the specific history of it but it's got i mean it has to start and end with disney and disney as an animation studio where i don't think they explicitly set to establish these norms within western uh animation but walt disney's first thing that he really wanted to do is to put uh fairy tales into animated form for children to essentially yeah. teach lessons just as fairy tales has always been doing so it sets a precedent. It shows like, okay, this is what animation is for. This is what, and you know, but they also had the most money, the most resources to keep pumping this out. And it's, so it kind of has a snowball effect where it starts to, to feed itself, at least in the West, where you don't have an analog for that anywhere else. And there are fascinating examples of not only just in Japan or, um, I mean, I guess Del Toro is working within the States too, but there are other, like the French animation has a similar ethos to Japan. I think it, which is funny is I think we're actually the exception here when yeah. it comes to our attitude about animation. It's just, we might be the one exception, but we're a really, really powerful cultural exception. Yeah, right. Um, where I think of, it's a film I watched a few months ago too, where, you know, the closest cultural analog to us is Britain. And like Watership Down is fucking brutal as a film too. Uh, so I think, 
I think, yeah, we're just like uniquely because of our particular history of how animation developed. We're just uniquely positioned to see animation as something that is geared towards children instead of a, like you say, a broad medium where, I mean, you can even see it in the beginning of cinema as a medium also, where it first was not taken seriously as an art form. It was more just like this interesting novelty that like, or like for documentary or for science or for recording things, it was not, it had to be deliberately developed as an art form by artists who wanted to make that clear. Like what Del Toro is doing right now with uh, animation in the West. And he's saying like, this is a serious medium that can tell stories for people older than 13. Right, right. You know what, what I thought was was a fun, not coincidence, probably not a coincidence, but just a fun thing to point out is uh, we, we've we covered of other like Central or South American folks using yeah. stop motion to talk about fascism before ah, yeah. in the Wolf House. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's some connective tissues here for um, sure. Well, the Wolf House is a lot scarier. Uh, makes me feel way worse. Um, but yeah, I think going back to your original point where stop motion kind of sits in this uncanny valley of reality where I would almost say like I, I've never lived under fascism, uh, so I don't know what it's like. But like my in my own studies of like especially Italian fascism, Spanish fascism, German fascism, other forms of like things that could be considered fascist, um, but maybe don't technically have the label on it at the moment. There is this weird uncanny valley of life that is going on where it's just like kind of what you mentioned up top too, where it's like this top down perception of what is the per perfect society and the perfect people within the perfect society and this being imposed on reality on the ground. And so it creates this dissonance that feels really uncomfortable. I would imagine I don't live in fascism, um, but I think that the Wolf House captures really well with this like elements of fantasy, elements of horror, elements of the uncanny valley. There's a lot of ugliness that's used to beautiful effect. Uh, and I think Pinocchio does a lot of these similar things. And so I think strangely enough, stop motion is kind of a, good medium to study fascism when it comes to art yeah yeah no doubt um so question then walt disney imposing the sort of these sort of conservative values of obedience in children from all the like turning all these stories into fairy tales for children is walt disney a fascist well i know he didn't care much for the jews i'll give you that much um i've heard that too <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, it's such a loaded question these days, and you see this getting thrown left, right, and center at opponents, left, right, and center of like, oh, you know, this person's a fascist, yeah, 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 where I like to land, like, there are a lot of people that I, I wouldn't call them fascists, but like, they could have fascist tendencies in them, they have, they check some boxes, I should have, I really should have shared this with you before we got started, it's another Italian, he's one of my favorite authors, Umberto Eco. Um, he writes a lot of fiction, but he's also a professor in semiotics. So he's really interested in what words mean. And fascism, especially for an Italian, is a word that you really want to make sure you lock down what that means. Um, and he has this text, and it's kind of this foundational text for identifying fascism in different contexts. And it's called Ur-Fascism. You are hyphen fascism. You can literally just Google it. It's pretty short. Um, and 
there are plenty of cases where you see like a particular political figure, a particular movement, and it's kind of a good guiding light of like, here's some checkpoints. And if they're checking enough of these boxes, it doesn't mean like, oh, once you check eight out of 10 boxes, you're officially a fascist, but it's showing like there are tendencies that you can look for. And did Walt Disney have some of those tendencies? Yeah, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, perhaps. That's as far as I'm going to go on that one. Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk more <laughs> about like this movie's portrayal of fascism and how it sort of folds into the other themes. And all, again, kind of folds into the even the ethos of this movie's creation. So uh, I pointed out earlier how there's like this sort of clever conceit happening in this movie where uh, a whole society of puppets are under fascist rule. In this case, um, Mussolini's Italy. What the thing that I really, really appreciate, particularly about Guillermo del Toro's studies of fascism, and this is the third in a trilogy um, that started with The Devil's Backbone, continued in Pan's Labyrinth, and he finally finished almost two decades later with Pinocchio. That even though these movies are very much about the way that these societies function under fascist regimes, he never ever lets the, that take the front seat to the human drama. Yeah. Like even like in this case, we have fathers as fascists, dads as dictators, right? And the way that, you know, we fathers try our best to uh, make our children perfect and how difficult it is when they are not behaving perfectly um, as a comparison to, you know, a, a dicta an actual dictatorship. <laughs> my, my mom, when I was a kid, she used to say, this house is not a democracy. <laughs> but I, what I say goes. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's probably pretty common way for parents to I mean, feel. It's all because I said so thing. Exactly. And um, it's just, I, I love how, just absolutely polar opposite that is to the original themes of the book, the original message of the Walt Disney movie as well, mm -hmm. half a century later. And in this movie, it's no, it's don't obey. Sometimes you need to break the rules. Sometimes you need to say no to your parents. Sometimes you need to uh, do the right thing, even if the rules are telling you that the right thing is something different. And again, the creation of this movie itself broke a lot of rules and broke a lot of conventions in order to, to arrive at truth more succinctly. Right. And again, this is another, this is a movie about truth. This is a movie where lies are punished. And um, I, I just think that's like just so genius how, yes, we're like very much seeing the results of of the war we're very much seeing Mussolini's Italy we're like very much getting all the iconography like really really pushed in our face but at the end of the day the story isn't about that in its mm -hmm. fundamentals it really is about fathers and sons and um I don't know if there's anything you want to add to that I've been sort well, of just rambling for a while there so the first thing that was interesting to me was when you were talking about how Disney's Pinocchio didn't run through that Disney's Pinocchio I just double checked was released in 1940 so oh boy so holy shit wow fascism hadn't been totally debunked at that point uh so it, it quite wasn't on the 
it wasn't as unsexy as it is now, I suppose would be the best way of putting it. Um, but yeah, speaking of the, how this is about interpersonal relationships first and foremost, and not so much political structures that are imposing itself on yeah. that. Um, well, it is funny that it, you said it's about fathers and sons. You mean like a fearer of sorts? <laughs> uh, but anyways, I think this goes into how, how human beings, you know, it's, it's always a question that you see people who are interested in history and want to study history. It's like, oh, how'd this happen? How did Italy step into fascism? How did regular German people that could just be like you and me, how'd they become fucking Nazis? You know, stuff like that. It's like, and this movie does a good job of showing like, yeah, there, there are human beings that are in certain cultural contexts, certain historical contexts that are then... Uh, nudged along in certain directions and some ways are easier than others because of getting along to get along. And yeah, um, yeah. in the real Italy, there is this guy named Antonio Gramsci that talks about this exact phenomenon. It's called uh, hegem hegemony. There we go. I always tongue twister that one. Um, and it's this idea that there are uh, cultural forces that are beneficial to the maintenance of power that power is going to want to perpetuate and it yeah. can come all the way down to this is how fathers treat their sons this is what a good boy does in school this is how we uh relate to our country this is what we think of other people like they all have they all can have a, a hegemonic lens to it and I think this does a really great job of how people interact with hegemony. And you see this constantly thrown at Pinocchio. Yeah. Of hegemony wanting to be like, Pinocchio, like this. And you you hear the, uh, the, the fascist dad where it's like, oh, he's so useful for the state. He's a great soldier. Let's make him into one of those. Let's make him one of these people that we need for the country. Or, um, oh, shoot, Christoph Waltz. What's his character's name? The Count Volpe. Count Volpe, he's like, oh, to my end, this is how I want him to be a person. Hegemony like can can act upon you to want yeah. you to have a certain character. So yeah, when we even think about what does it mean to be brave, what does it mean to be strong, why are those important, what does it mean to be honest, um, and and in in our ways of understanding these terms, what does it mean to be a part of a community? These are all hegemonic ideas, and yeah. the thing is. They are invented and they can be challenged. Now they can be challenged and proven like, oh, this is a good thing. Like you're like, democracy is hegemony, but it's a good one. Right. Uh, and we can all agree upon that and think that's something we should keep. But Pinocchio is constantly because he has this childlike view as someone who's brand new to the world, which I think is really useful as a character, where he's like looking, he's like, Well, why is it like that? Why are we doing this? What's going on here? And this constant challenging to him is just curiosity. A child's curiosity to a fascist is a threat. And yeah. so I think that's, and the real life person that coined the term hegemony was an Italian that got imprisoned by fascists for having the wrong opinions. So it's, mm. it, it's a very interesting, oh, and then going into the film itself too, where Jiminy, is he called Jimmy? No, he's not Jimmy Cricket. He's not a he's, Seb he's Sebastian Jimmy Cricket. Ah, Seb Sebastian Sebastian J Cricket. Ah, wonderful. Uh, Sebastian J. That's such a fun touch. Uh, that he actually has a poster or a, like a portrait of Antonio Gramsci on his wall, which yeah. makes it, it not only makes sense within the world of the film because he's an Italian anti-fascist, so that that would be someone that could be a hero to like a you know a debonair rebellious intellectual type like uh, Sebastian J Cricket. But it also just works for the theme of the film. Like what you said, it just keeps on fucking folding over on itself. There's yeah. not a thing 
in this film that doesn't work yeah. not only visually, aesthetically, but also thematically. It's gorgeous. Yeah. Just a just a quick little sidebar. So I love so there's so many father and son relationships we've got. And the thing that I, I love that in this version, Pinocchio doesn't give a shit about being a real boy. It never comes up. It's never something for him. Like, but we do have a real boy in the form of Candlewick who is mm-hmm. who is under this pressure from his father right. and who is ill-equipped to deal with it the way that Pinocchio is and seeing his progression. My God, man, just the little, just the side plot of, of Candlewick's journey mm-hmm. is heartbreaking, but very, very but so uh, true life, to life. life affirming and true to life. Yeah. And they all, but they all have it right. We've got Spazzatura as a sort of a child figure for Volpe and, mm. and he, you know, Pinocchio touches him in that way. Um, we've got Jesus and God, yeah. like happening in the background in this movie but on on we'll get to more of that but like what what my favorite character like my favorite this like small bit of a character grappling with their father is just the running bit where the cricket starts his song and doesn't get to finish it starts his song and doesn't get to finish it until he finally does in the ending credits after he's dying and how does that song start my dear father always said and then boom <laughs> shut the fuck up we don't want to hear what your father always said and uh it's just wild just how that message is permeating if, even through the little silly jokes that happen mm-hmm. mm. yeah it's uh, like you said there, yeah there's not a single thing that hasn't been thought through all the way down to the syllable no it's uh, it's, it's perfect yeah <laughs> um where where do we go? Where do we go? Oh, okay. So while, while we're talking about the music and while we're talking about um, fascism, the movie does a very cool thing where um, in the first half of the film, literally the first half, like down to the minute, um, all the characters sing. Um, they sing I want songs. They, song, they sing songs about their own personal, their lives, their wants, their loves, um, you know, their dreams etc etc like they say goodbye to each other in song they say hello to each other in song they, they they express how they feel in song and then right at the dead center of the film the the most beautiful song in the in the movie and actually i think one of the most beautiful songs in like recent movie musical history happens and it's uh ciao papa ciao papa mio papa time has come to say farewell for how long will i go is it far? No one knows, no one can tell. If I am gone for a long, long time, I'll pack away a fine piece of shine. The sounds of birds jumping with bells, draw rings of plums to bags of shells, the smell of And then that song ends and it immediately smash cuts to Pinocchio singing a fascist anthem. Right. Yeah. And then that is the last time, you know, characters get to sing in the movie for themselves. And from there on out, the all, any anytime lyrics happen in a song, it's more just fascist anthem. Right. And it literally happens at the exact halfway well, point to the minute. Until we get the poo-poo fascist anthem. Well, right, 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 right. But it, the 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 music 
gets this jauntiness yeah which is like which is like like pretty pretty scary that like and it it reminds me of the wolf house where it's like the the fascists are making this like what they think is this like very very um appealing like documentary or whatever right that's the music of the people but but, it's made by one guy right right but what, what you know what's actually behind those dead eyes is is monstrous and i think it's that was a that was mark gustafson's idea the co-director is that the very like we'll divide it into equal halves the first half will be a traditional kind of disney-esque musical in that way and then the second half will be nothing but fascist anthems Ah, and um yeah it's 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 genius so okay so we know from history and maybe current events as well that oftentimes a dictatorship or a fascist regime will initially get their hooks into society using religion Mm. and um the christianity or the or the catholicism in this movie is wild Mm -hmm. like and like we even get like at the beginning we even get that the violent mashup of poor poor little carlo just being mesmerized by his father's statue of jesus before getting incinerated by a bomb Mm -hmm. um the statue makes it out unscathed but not carlo yeah maybe we could talk about that like we can just throw out some examples like obviously pinocchio's jesus he gets crucified in this movie his he's you know his his dad is thrusting perfection upon him and a lot of uh responsibility upon him to live up the, to the his world dad. doesn't understand him and he's persecuted for it yeah he resurrects over and he, over he resurrects. More than the actual jesus out jesus is him he yeah he he dies on purpose to save others yeah there's there's a lot like there's even like other biblical stories in here there's obviously jonah and the whale right happens uh almost literally one of the interesting ones i noticed um today was uh not today but when i watched this a couple days ago was there's a great scene the, the first time pinocchio dies volpe and geppetto are literally like arguing over him like pulling him apart um trying to like impose their own parentage onto him equally that's like clearly conjuring up the judgment of solomon right um and uh the the, the other thing is um maybe maybe this is where my question is and this is maybe just throwing a wild curveball out and seeing if like you can hit it you know what i'm talking about you know what i'm talking about i don't have but, a trouble with the curve all right but um pinocchio as like a late 30s european jew mm-hmm. perhaps like he's got this great line where he's looking up at jesus and he says he's made of wood i'm made of wood we're both made of wood why do they love him and hate me what is um, it's because you crucified him like the rest of the Jews. Yeah, do you do you think I'm I'm like making that up or is or is like Pinocchio as a like a late 30s European Jew? Is that a real thing in this movie? I think my first pass at that, because I remember you you had written that down. I was I was thinking about that when that scene popped up, where I think it's more like what you said is Pinocchio is a Christ figure where he's someone who's iconoclastic, he is going against the power structures that be. Uh, and at, at uh, in not in a, a violent way, but just in a uh, basically a, a morally superior way or an ethically superior way, and that's what gets him into trouble because his ideas are dangerous for that reason. Where it, uh, for the story of Jesus, you know, is challenging the Roman state at the time. For the story of Pinocchio, I think it'd be challenging the Italian state at the time. And I think that's it's what's very interesting about the differences in between. I mean, there are three main facets 
the fascist fascist nations that arise about the same time. And Guillermo del Toro uh, has made two films about Spain. He hasn't made. I wonder if I'll ever make one about Germany. I think that'd be really interesting, actually. Um, but Italy is the uh, unique one of the three because that's where fascism comes from. Like fasci, with as in fascism, where the root of the word is from, is a Roman term. It's a. Uh, it's like one of their standards that has like a little axe on the end. That's what a fasci is, or it's a bunch of uh, wood or logs or pieces of wood put together or pieces of wood put together like as a bundle to show like, oh, we're like strong together. We're a fasci. Um, so <laughs> to show him as a, I don't think he's necessarily specifically a late thirties Jew, but he is a person who is outside of fascist society. So at least specifically for Italians, those would be Slavs and non Italians where it does eventually mold with, uh, national socialism, which becomes the Nazi party, where actually at first they were at odds with one another, uh, but eventually they started realizing, because you actually see this in the film too, fascists are very, they don't really have an ideology, they're just whatever gets them power. Um, and you see that where it's like this figure Pinocchio, who is very much ideologically opposed to them, and they say this over and over, once the dad realizes, oh, he's a super soldier, all of a sudden, Pinocchio's the best and the greatest. Yeah. Um, and you see that just naked, cynical power grab happen in real life fascism, too, between the Germans and the Italians, where there are some very big contradictions between their two ideologies. In fact, Germans saw Italians as subhumans, <laughs> right. but uh, they were willing to play ball with one another because they both hated the same group. So there, there's plenty of um, kind of historical theory that goes behind this where it's like let's just say you know the allies lose the war it wouldn't have just been like spain and italy live happily ever after like germany probably would have tried to eradicate italy because they saw them as subhuman um so it just shows how like untenable fascism is as an idea and so pinocchio is not only he's a jew he's a slav he's a gypsy he's a leftist he's handicapped he's disabled he's yeah well, Literally, whatever yeah. Mussolini doesn't like, that's what he stood in for there. Thank you. I, I knew I knew that Dan, the history buff, would have a great way to just knock that out of the park. But you throwing him a little slider there. You you helped tee it up for me, you know. Yeah, yeah, that was more of like you just like smack smack the tee ball, huh? <laughs> um, man, I don't I don't know where to go from here. I'm I'm so just like. I'm so tempted to just continue rattling off the minutia of just brilliance in this movie. Like one thing that I noticed this time was that there's one character in this movie where basically like everything that comes out of his mouth is a lie and it's count Volpe and he's a character with the big, biggest nose, long nose. (laughs) I noticed that too. So good. How the fuck? Like it's so good. Um, (laughs) What what else? Um, well, just like from an, like an eye candy view, uh, fascist paintball looks like so much fun. Oh yeah, that's oh well, and that scene is that scene is is marvelous. Like the lighting in that scene and just how much action is happening. Just knowing that every tiny little thing had to be animated and shot with a real camera, like a hand grenade that fires things. off confetti, unnecessarily difficult. Yeah, well, and light like um moving spotlights kicking the lamp yeah Yeah, literally kicking the lamp in that um just absolute 
wizardry. Um, I think of the that scene and then the scene in the church when the bomb is falling. And the bomb, how do I describe it? The bomb doesn't feel like it's suspended in the air, being moved a little bit, shot, moved a little bit. If you feel the weight of the bomb yeah, like dropping, swim, almost, yeah. I, I don't even understand how it's possible. Oh, and then even um, folding it back into the themes of like, they made that clear just how people's ideas of World War One is like just how senseless and how un, uh, I don't know, just almost accidental World War One was. Like it made, like it had no purpose behind it. That's how he dies for no purpose. It was just an accident. They were just like, ah, we need to yeah. drop these bombs. It's like, isn't that kind of what World War One was in kind of a sense? Or it's like, ah, oh, we got right. all these bombs. I guess we got to right. use we gotta them. See, we got to see what happens when we throw planes into this shit. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, another, another, just a couple of neat little things um, that I noticed this time because I was, God, I was watching this movie with a fucking microscope this time. <laughs> is you know, it opens up with a shot of the perfect uh, pine cone that right. carlo that carlo would find right and it's the first time we learned that geppetto is obsessed with perfection and that he uh carlo shows him a few pine cones and no that one no that's not perfect and then finally carlo finds him like a real perfect pine cone the one that we see at the beginning and um gives it to geppetto we see him fumbling with it almost dropping it a few times but no it's still perfect he, carlo sadly dies the pine cone flies out, mm. smashes into the ground, loses a few of its like scales or what have you. And, you know, then Geppetto plants that pine cone. And then the pine tree that grown, grows out of it is what he carves Pinocchio out of. And when he's drunk and carving Pinocchio, he, the, the, the left side of, or the right side of Pinocchio's face, our left, he like, he, you see him literally whittling the ear to perfection and like every single bit of that side of Pinocchio is perfect. And then he he gets drunker and he's basically just like, oh, fuck it. And like just finishes the right side really quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and Pinocchio ends up looking like the pine tree that is all or like the pine cone. that's all fucked up on just one side. Um, and then obviously, like later, we see like another tree growing in the same spot and the cycle of life happening in a new and, perfect pine cone. And I think even on top of that when the 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 pine cone initially gets spat out of the church like i saw that as like a a symbolic motif of what a hand grenade looks like so the it pops out because a a, you know a bomb blew everything up but now this hand grenade gets planted creates a new tree new life continues on just like the story where it's like that town goes through world war one life continues world war two also a tragedy life continues like there's still things are being birthed out of tragedies yeah yeah oh my god and yeah just the cyclical nature of that is so well exemplified by the final shot of the film being the same as oh. the first shot of the film with the pine cone yeah i feel like this movie is is, is just literally perfect like it's a 10 out of 10 there's like no way around it <laughs> no notes yeah no notes and uh the fucking mad genius is already balls deep in pre-production on another stop motion animated film oh yeah I'm I'm excited for that. Uh, you know, hopefully it doesn't take as long as this one. <laughs> <laughs> or Aaron, what would, uh, for those who 
loved it even half as much as you loved this movie uh what would you recommend they check out okay okay so i gotta i gotta just throw out there like the obvious like devil's backbone and pan's labyrinth if you haven't seen those and you like pinocchio they're they're a trilogy so you gotta see those um i'm gonna go so weird on these ones okay so the first one is the documentary that we alluded to at the top of the hour <laughs> oh, awesome that's available on netflix and uh in an expanded form in the new criterion release blu-ray of this movie that i uh have right over here uh it's called hand carved cinema it's just uh just ridiculously in-depth behind the scenes footage of um going into a lot of the the cool minutia of how this movie was made that we talked about, but like actually seeing it, there's all these amazing shots of time lapses of the animators working. So you see literally like a week of their work happen in like 10 seconds in front of you. Uh, and yeah, it's just wild. Um, so cool. It's uh, it plays autumn. Like if you, if you pull up Pinocchio, like the movie Pinocchio on Netflix, you finish watching it then handcarved cinema just immediately starts playing um an example right of the algorithm doing good yeah yeah yep doing good and doing it well and um yeah so it's kind of a weird pick but uh that's my first one dan what about you so um a movie that guillermo del toro uh cites i know for pan's labyrinth he probably was also thinking about this with pinocchio um it's one it's a a Spanish film by the name Spirit of the Beehive, which it has a lot of similar bones to Pan's Labyrinth, where it's a view of Spanish fascism through the eyes of a child. But what's really interesting about this one, too, is that director uh, Victor Erice, or Eris Erice, I'm not sure, um, he made this during Franco's Spain, in the middle of fascism, trying to comment very much in the same way that Guillermo del Toro does in Pan's Labyrinth. So what he has to do is just to get around the censors. So he has to make it uh, very uh, symbolically rife and much more diffuse. And actually, it's funny. There's a tidbit on Wikipedia when I was reading about the history of this where it kind of was only fine being made, even though it did have some uh, overt criticisms of fascism where the censors look like, this is artsy fartsy stupid shit like the the your average spaniard's not gonna watch this it's too weird uh so that's part of the reason why it never got made in the first place it also similar to uh this uh pinocchio and as well as a lot of del toro's uh oeuvre is it treats frankenstein and the monstrous with a sympathetic eye so i think del toro it makes a lot of sense that he really respects this film interesting yeah, and um, he, Frankenstein is the other film that Del Toro has had cooking in his head since he was a child. And he is currently, I think, wrapping production on his Frankenstein movie. Oh, you know, yeah. Between like that after, and Nosferatu, that after like, there? yeah, after like 55 years of it, this movie, um, begging to escape Guillermo Del Toro's mind, we're finally going to get to see it like next year or the year after. That's something amazing. like that with an amazing cast. Mia Goth is the Bride of Frankenstein in it. Perfect. Get the fuck out. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, that's amazing. Uh, okay, I'm going to go weird again, and I'm going to recommend a movie that I haven't seen yet. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> but I think there's, like, undeniable bones uh, that it shares with both Frankenstein and Pinocchio um, about, you know, a, a, a mad scientist who brings uh, sort of a 
perfect life form into the world with the brain of a child. Oh, are you talking about poor things? Yeah, who just doesn't understand why we're not living in a socialist utopia yet. (laughs) And uh, goes about trying to make it happen in her own way. Yeah, poor things. I haven't seen it yet, but um, tell me I'm wrong. Um, I won't because I know it's it's currently Thursday and you're going to watch on Saturday. So I'm going to let you hold that thought. And maybe we can swing back and talk about it on a later episode. Yeah. So I, I don't recall whether or not Pinocchio gets like fucked while like strung up in some bondage gear. In you but... don't see Pinocchio's tits nearly as much. Okay. Yeah. Well. Okay. I still recommend it because <laughs> it's very it's very much about like someone with just a full fully innocent but brilliant mind grappling with why society is the way it is and why it can't be just better right and that's um, that is without spoiling too much for you like that is a big thrust of what moves the plot is someone just asking really basic questions about why things are the way they are and you have people in who have a vested interest in keeping things the way they are being like what the fuck no stop yeah yep but this Uh, person is more powerful than them in ways that they can't imagine right Um, so my other one is actually, it's not going to be a film. Uh, I guess you could technically call it a short film if you add them all together. I think I've told you about this. It's a YouTube series called Don't Hug Me, I'm Scared. Oh, I definitely have watched all of it. Oh my fuck. It's, it's, I think it's literally the, it, it might genuinely be the best single thing that is on YouTube when it comes to like an original creative work that is on the internet. Um, you know, it features puppetry. It features the, it works within the uh the style of what is traditionally understood as children's media and i think this where pinocchio is looking at how hegemony um can influence your decisions and push your decisions in fascism this is a great look at how hegemony works in neoliberalism Mm. in today's world yeah Um, green is not a creative color no (laughs) oh i love that it's also just fucking weird it's yeah. so cool so i mean i mean i saw the um the like obviously i've seen the what like the original like five or six episodes on youtube but i haven't seen like the tv series that it spawned have you and, and is it any no no we should watch know. it we should watch it and discuss i'm apprehensive i don't know if like there's something about like the lightning in the bottle of the form like the the medium of quick little five minute uh, YouTube videos, I think, really worked for it. That I'm worried that the TV show is going to tarnish that. I don't know. Right, right. Yeah, um, I totally agree um, that it's awesome and that you should watch it. Mm-hmm. I got, I was so fucking high. Oh, the yeah. first time I watched the first <laughs> episode of Don't Hug Me, I'm Scared. Ugh. And I was with like some of my theater friends. We were like, it was like after a show that we were all in, we were like smoking weed at someone's house that was nearby theater and someone threw it on. And I was like assaulted. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. I love it. So, so scary, scary in like a, in a way that is like unspeakable. (laughs) And and like Pinocchio, you could spend that. There literally are like entire micro communities on the internet that they just, exists to pick apart the symbolism in this uh in don't hug me i'm scared yeah great that's a great pick man that's so cool and i just want to also throw out there that in a previous episode uh dan recommended that folks watch over the garden wall oh which yeah. is 
you know, created and written by Patrick McHale, who wrote the movie we've spent the last hour and a half talking about. A, yeah, stunning film, right? Well, film, can you, when you put them all together, it's a film. I mean, I think all the episodes, none of them are much more than 10, 15 minutes, but all together, it's like 80 minutes or something like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think I've only ever watched it as like a, one whole unit. Yeah, I've only ever binged it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, they were probably released as individual episodes when it was first airing on Adult Swim, I would guess. But yeah, and that is, um, but that is a shame that I'm that you're seeing the news that Warner Brothers and uh, Universal are starting to or are talking about a merger, and like that is something that someone pointed out is like Nickelodeon and Cartoon Network would then become under the same umbrella, and like I don't want I want Cartoon Network like that's always where the freak shit came out of, you know? Yeah, like yeah. that's where the interesting animation comes out. Uh, I hope that doesn't happen. That seemed like some serious antitrust thing. Like, then, I mean, like, Disney is what, what Disney is. We let that happen. Right. But how long before Disney tries to buy Universal Paramount or, Discover, or Warner Brothers Discovery Universal Paramount or whatever? <laughs> yeah. I yeah. think I sent you that meme where it's like, now introducing Cable Plus. And it's right. like all, all the uh, streaming services slapped together. Oh, God. This is the most boring dystopia. <laughs> God. It's the worst. Well, on that note, I think that does it for this week's episode of Concessions. I'm Jared. And I'm Dan. And we hope your wood is a little bit harder than when you started. My dear father loved to say, hop to the top of the day. The drops are easy to swallow. My dear father loved to say, up your tears and mend your sorrows to not drown your soul wishing for better tomorrows you want to think bright you want to think right a star falling down 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 doesn't break the night you want to think bright whatever you do shadows bring you all the light as you try to climb for life has a funny way of going round and round on a ride it goes one day side to side one day upside down 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 you can make it right well worth a good fight and if some days have downs and lows open your arms to better Floating tune is in the air. The simple things you care to share. A trace of light, a flock of sparrows, anything high you dare to follow. Open your arms to better tomorrows. Tomorrows. You want to think bright. You want to think right. To let your heart sing, sing, sing on a summer night. You want to think bright, whatever you do. When the strings go zing, 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 fly high with the band, just get up and swing. A good fight. And if some days have downs and lows, open your arms to better.